Welcome to the Authentic Faith Podcast, a sermon catalog for Mission U, the student ministry at Mission Bible Church in Costa Mesa, California. We hope that this sermon will be a blessing to you as you pursue fervent faith in a fallen world. Enjoy. All right, well, welcome everyone. Good evening. Welcome Mission Youth. As always, it is a joy to be with you guys. Uh, as I look around the room, I do see some new faces, and I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome if this is your first time. By chance, if this is your first time, if you were invited out, or if you're, this is just the first time that you're here joining us, go ahead and raise your hand really quick. Okay, cool. We got a couple. We got four, four, five, six. Yeah, praise the Lord. We're so glad that you guys are here. It is such a joy. And so just a couple of notes about who we are before we jump in. Uh, here at Mission Youth, we're all about the Bible. We love the Bible. We love worshiping our God through scripture and through song, and uh, we take the Bible very seriously. And so as we turn to his word right now, we're going to study through a passage of scripture, and we're going to work through verse by verse, unpack what it means, and unpack what that means for our life today. And so what I encourage you to do is to lock in, lock in for the next 40 minutes or so, dive in, pay attention, follow along with us, write notes, and and I, I just encourage you to be deeply engaged. Uh, I, I promise that should you dwell upon the truth that comes from God's word, it will transform your life. And so I'm glad to, to be able to hop into God's word with you guys. Go ahead and turn in your copy of God's word to John chapter 3. We are actually going to take a break from our study in James and look to John chapter 3. Focusing really on eight verses, verses one through eight. The title for tonight's message is God's Greatest Miracle and Man's Greatest Need. God's Greatest Miracle and and Man's Greatest Need. Now, by virtue of that title, it begs two questions right off the bat. What is God's greatest miracle and what is man's greatest need? You see, how you answer these two questions is really of the utmost importance. It's vital. It has many implications, many consequences for many things to come. And so my, my aim tonight is to show you through the lens of Scripture that the answer to these two questions is actually one and the same. When we consider God's greatest miracle and man's greatest need, When we answer those questions biblically, we find that they are the same answer. Now, when we consider that, when we consider that God's greatest miracle is not only connected to man's greatest need, but it actually meets man's greatest need, that begs the question, what is man's greatest need? That's the question that comes to mind. Now, as we consider what man's greatest need is, if I were to ask each and every one of you, chances are you would have different answers, right? Some of you might go to physical needs. Some of you may take to financial needs. Some others may even take to relational needs. But I contend that what scripture really emphasizes as the main primary need for man is not in any of those categories. Because man's greatest need is a spiritual need. 
In fact, man's greatest need is spiritual life. Man's greatest need is indeed spiritual life. You see, you and I, we need spiritual life. We must have spiritual life. It's vital. It's crucial. It's important that we have spiritual life coursing through our veins. And it's at this point that man's greatest need intersects. It crosses with God's greatest miracle. You see, the greatest miracle that God performs is not creating physical life in the womb, but rather spiritual life in the soul. It's not providing physical healing for the sinner's hurt, but rather spiritual healing for the sinner's heart. God's greatest miracle is that he imparts the same spiritual life that man so desperately needs. He puts it right into the very heart and soul of a man. When one experiences this, this new life, this spiritual life, it's what you would call the new birth. And the new birth really is the the topic, the subject matter of these eight verses that we're going to look at tonight. And no passage more clearly deals with this subject of the new birth than Jesus's kind of late night conversation with a certain Pharisee named Nicodemus. So who is Nicodemus? Chapter 3, verse 1 takes us straight into it with a description of him. Look at verse 1. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So immediately, two vital points come out about who Nicodemus is. First, he's a man of the Pharisees. Now, it's important to know that the Pharisees were a group of about 6,000 people, 6,000 men, and they were the religious elite. They were the guys who were zealous about the law. In modern terms, they would have been the super Christian. They're the guys who knew their Bible. They were, they were the Bible men. If you had questions about the scriptures, you would go to them. You would ask them about the Old Testament scriptures. They were kind of the first class when it came to Bible studiers, Bible academics, Bible educators. And Nicodemus, I mean, we can call him Nico at this point. Nico was a part of the first class group. In fact, uh, chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that he was the, the distinguished teacher. He was the distinguished teacher. He was the go-to guy. He was the one quoting verses. He's the one that could take you to where you needed to be in Scripture to find all your answers. So he was a man of the Pharisees. Second, he was a ruler of the Jews. The NIV really renders this as a member of the Jewish ruling council, a.k.a. the Sanhedrin. Now, that's a pretty cool-sounding title. But what that was is that was the elite group within the elite group. The Sanhedrin was really the VIPs of the VIPs, the elites of the elites. How many of you guys are Disney, Disney people, Disneyland people? Okay, a couple. I got like one. Usually all the hands fly up. Well, all of you guys know what it means to be an annual pass holder, right? You got an annual pass, you can kind of go in, do what you want, and it's kind of like this cool little club because you have access to Disneyland. Well, if being a Pharisee is like being a pass holder, being a part of the Sanhedrin's like being a part of Club 33. Now, who has heard of Club 33? Oh, okay. More people have heard of Club 33. That's a, in a, an elite group. 
That's a really elite group. That's what these guys were. It was a group of 71 people who were really the, the rulers of the Jewish community under the authority of Rome. And so Nicodemus wasn't just some everyday, easygoing guy. He was one of the guys on the very top. He was one of the guys who's up at the pinnacle of the Jewish hierarchy. He was a big, he was a big deal when we think about Nicodemus. He was important. So it's this man that we find coming to Jesus. You see in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, there are many theories as to why he came at night. Some say it was because he was afraid of being seen with Jesus. Others say that he just wanted the privacy because Jesus had big crowds following him. Really, we don't know why he came at night. But the idea is that he came at night, and Jesus welcomed him at night. And he comes to Jesus, and he says, Rabbi, meaning teacher, a term of respect that Nicodemus is giving to Jesus, even though he knows that he's not trained. He's not a trained teacher, yet he still uh, approaches him with somewhat of a reverence and a respect. He comes to him and he says, teacher, we know, we know, kind of general terms, maybe speaking for a group that's uh, wondering about who Jesus is, but he speaks with certainty. He says, look, we know and understand that you came from God as a teacher. So Nicodemus is willing to acknowledge that there's something unique about Christ. He comes up and he says, you must be a man of God. You must be a man of God. Yet his understanding of Christ only went so far. It went only to this idea of him being a teacher and no further. His understanding was really what you could call shallow. He didn't really know Jesus, at least not how he thought he did. So what does this lead to? When we, when we think about the, the conclusion for Nicodemus, shallow faith, somewhat. In fact, he goes on to explain that as he mentions why he knows he's a good teacher. He says, for no one can do these signs unless... You, uh, the signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, he was focused on the signs. He says, the reason I know who you are and that you're this great teacher is because I'm watching the signs. That's how I know that you're from God. But what we find in Scripture is that with the Jews, unbelieving Jews were always enamored. They were always interested in signs. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, being Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Matthew 16, 1. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, For indeed, Jews ask for a sign, and Greeks search for wisdom. I mean, we only have to go back into the last chapter, John chapter 2. Look at verse 23, and it says that many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, verse 25, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning him, for he himself knew what was in man. If you have a pen, go ahead and track back to verse 23 and circle that word, believed. 
And then jump down to verse 25, or 24, and circle the word entrusting. Those are important words to understand when we're looking at that. Because believed and entrusting, they come from the same root word in the Greek. It's talking about a belief. He says they believed in him, but essentially Jesus was not believing in their faith. They said they had faith in Christ. It was a shallow faith. It was a faith based on seeing some signs. He said they, they believed, but he didn't believe in them. Signs-based faith, guys, if, you're gonna, if you want to take anything from this statement, signs-based faith that relies on signs, you think of the charismatic movement, you think of some of the Pentecostal stuff, a signs-based faith is a shallow faith at best. At best. If you're saying that uh, your faith is, is, is rooted upon seeing signs and wonders and miracles, that is a shallow faith if faith at all. That's the point. That's not a good thing that we're seeing with Nicodemus here, as, as he's mentioning this in verse 2. You see, as we're looking at Nicodemus, we're starting to see a couple of things about him. And as you go through and study him more, you find a couple of issues with Nicodemus. And I'll just give you two. The first one is that he practiced an empty religion. Nicodemus practiced an empty religion. He was a man with the cart before the horse. He assumed rather than assessed whether his faith was real. He just banked on a whole bunch of information, watched a couple of signs. Essentially, he grasped for divine growth without first having divine life. There was no life in him, genuine spiritual life. He sought sanctification, big, big word for growing in holiness, before regeneration, being saved. He says, I want to grow in holiness. I want to be obedient. But I haven't even been transformed in the heart yet. So we see that he, he's putting things in the, in the wrong order here. He knew his word. He obeyed the law. He served hard. Yet, his religion was empty. Nicodemus did and did and did and did and did. He read the word, he did the word, but he was still dead. Now, the reality is that could be some of us in the room. That you do, you do, you do, you do. Yet inside, the heart's still cold. So Nicodemus practiced an empty faith. Second, he possessed a wrong understanding. He had a very wrong understanding. See, he spoke with confidence. He said, you know, we know, we know who you are. You're a teacher, a teacher sent from God. He's a smart guy. Remember, remember he, he's Bible man. All the people come to him for, for answers. Yet his fundamental understanding of who Christ is, is gone. He, he he's completely missed the mark when it comes to who Jesus Christ is. You see, what, what Nicodemus needs is a wake-up call. He needs his eyes opened. He needs some spiritual life coursing through his veins. He's in deep and utter need. 
for something to happen in his life. He's walking around, shallow faith, no understanding. Now, the reality is, we look back and we look at guys like Nicodemus, we can say, man, that's unfortunate for him. But that's the case for many who are in the church today. They walk around with an empty faith, an improper understanding of who God is. Actually, I just had a, a conversation with a young woman earlier this week who's coming up and she's saying, you know, for, for the majority of my life, I believed that I was saved because I had this profession of faith when I was very young. Grew up in a Christian home. I heard all these things. I was familiar with the Bible. I went and said that I was a believer. I walked an aisle type of deal. I prayed a prayer type of deal. But I'm now just realizing that I don't think I was saved until just a couple of years ago. She says, my faith was empty. I did these things. I went to church. I prayed. I sat in a youth group. I took notes. And I would do good at sometimes. But I still loved my sin. I still relied on my own strength. I still thought I was good enough. I still tried to earn my way into heaven. I still tried to do these things, not even realizing that I was dead on it, on the inside. Now, some of you, when I say that, you might be able to relate a little bit. You're saying, I do this, the, these things. I, I show up. I, I come. I have my Bible and I read, but there really isn't an interest in the things of God. I still kind of like living for myself, doing what I want to do. I still really love my sin. There's maybe some sins that I'm not really willing to let go on. He says, look, that's an empty faith. That's a hollow faith. That's a faith with no substance. That's not really faith at all. Nicodemus had that kind of faith all ritualistic, all acts, no heart. That was Nicodemus. That might be you. If so, listen to what Jesus tells him instead in verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You notice that, that Jesus didn't even acknowledge his last statement? And then Jesus goes on to answer a question that wasn't even asked? He, he skips completely over this whole, you're, you're a teacher sent from God thing, and he goes straight to the heart. He, he had a single-minded focus. He says, I'm going past the pleasantries, and I'm aiming straight for who you are. He cuts through the facade. He says, I want your heart. I'm going for your heart. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's addressing really what's on the inside of Nicodemus. And he knew what was on the inside. I mean, verse 20, uh, 24 in the last chapter says that he knew man. And he knew what was in man. You see, Jesus isn't just looking out the outer appearance here. 
What he does is he says, look, Nicodemus, I hear the words you're saying, but let me look past that. Let me go straight to, to the issue at hand. You have a great need. You have an incredible need. And he says that need is that you be born again. That's what, that's what he's saying by truly, truly. He, he's emphasizing, he's saying, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is vitally, vitally, vitally important. And those words that would come out of Jesus' mouth following truly, truly are words that would change Nicodemus' life forever. And he says, you need to hear this. You need to hear what I'm about to tell you. He says, you have a great need, and I need to help you diagnose that thing. So you know what the remedy is. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Essentially what he's saying is, Nicodemus, you must be made a new creation. You must be brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. You need the seed of spiritual life implanted into the soil of your soul. You require divine nature in your mortal being is what he's getting at. He says, your great need is the union between the natural man and the supernatural God. That's what you need. You need to be made new from the inside out. You need new life. You need spiritual life. Jesus was driving at the fact that a sinner needed to be made alive. He needed to be born again. You see, that was Nicodemus' greatest need, and so it is for each and every person in the room. No one's exempt. No one's excluded. Whether you're in sixth grade, whether you're a senior, whether you're an adult in the room, whether it's your infant brother or sister at home, whether it's your grandparents, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what color you are, doesn't matter how tall you are, none of that matters. Each and every person has this great need. Each and every one. And it's that you need new life. See, these words, they would change Nicodemus' life forever. And I want to examine what he says here. And as we do, I want to draw your attention to really four things, four realities about the new birth. Look back at verse 3. We'll see the first one. And that is that you must be born from above. You must be born from above. It says in verse 3, unless one is born again. That word born means to be conceived. You think of a baby being conceived, birthed. He says you need to be born. And that word again can literally be translated as from above. He says, look, you need a second birth. You need to be brought forth and birthed out from above. Says, look, to be born again is to be born a second time from above. Your first birth was natural. We've all experienced the first birth, hence why you're here. 
We've all experienced the first birth. He says, that's not enough. You need the second birth. You need a supernatural birth. He says, look, the first birth is earthly. You need a second birth that's heavenly. You need a divine birth, something spiritual to take place. See, that's the case, again, for each and every one of us. Peter gets at this in 1 Peter 1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, the Lord is merciful. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us, being the body of believers, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in that same chapter, verse 23, he goes on to say, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. He says, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above. That's the first one. Let's look at the second one. Not only must you be born from above, but you must be born again by necessity, by need. We'll look at that same passage in verse 3. And notice the words that he uses here, the the, the strong terminology. He, He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, unless shows that there's a condition. Unless something is met, a requirement is met, you will not receive such and such. He says, look, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot. And that speaks to the absolute inability. Absolute inability. It's not that you just don't see. It's that you cannot see. You can't see the kingdom of God. But then that raises the question, right? Anybody got a question going off in your head? Here, I'm going to see if I can guess the question. What is the kingdom of God? Anybody thinking that? No one. Everybody knows what the kingdom of God is. Well, you just made my job extremely easy. But just in case, we need a quick reminder. The kingdom of God here, it refers to the sphere of sovereign rule and reigning of God. That's what we're talking about. In fact, one theologian describes it as the sphere of salvation, the realm of redemption, the government of grace. It is the sphere, meaning the environment, in which the saving grace of God is operative, is at work in the citizens who are in this kingdom. So he's saying that God is ruling, God is reigning, and you will not see that apart from the new birth. Only when you're born again do you gain what you could call kingdom vision. And kingdom vision is essentially followed up by kingdom citizenship. So you see the kingdom, you are part of the kingdom. You are in the kingdom. And that is the aim for each and every person. We want to be in the kingdom. We desire to be in the kingdom. And let me just make it clear that you cannot buy your way, you cannot bargain your way, and you cannot beg your way into the kingdom. You can't. You cannot work your way into 
the kingdom of God. It's only when you're born of, of God. Now, when we hear that, I'm like, oh, well, maybe. Maybe I can still just be a good enough person. You know, if there is a God up there, if I'm just good enough, maybe he'll let it slide. Well, let me help you clear the air here. There's no one good enough. No one's good enough. In fact, if you think about Nicodemus, if somebody like Nicodemus can't earn his way, and you think about Nicodemus in his rap sheet, he, he is a guy of Bible knowledge, right? He's got the Bible knowledge, he's got the gifts, he's got the understanding, the position, he's got the big theological words, maybe the multiple degrees, he's got the nice clothes, the winning smile, the funny jokes, the popularity, he's even got the blue checkmark Instagram account. He is the top of the top, right? He's popular. Millions of followers. He's the wise guy. If he's not in, that says something. That says something. If he could not earn his keep, that says something. This isn't about earning your way. It says, look, without being born from above, this thing isn't happening. It's a necessity. You need, you must be born from above. That's his point. You can imagine what's going through his head as he's hearing this thing. He's probably born from above. What, what, what does that mean? In fact, look at verse 4. You can see him kind of wrestling through it. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter uh, a second time into his mother's womb to be born, can he? That's a weird thought. He says, how does an old guy go back into his mom to be born again? What is that? that doesn't make sense. It's impossible. You see, what we're seeing right now with Nicodemus is a man's world being flipped. We're seeing a man's world being turned upside down. As he's hearing these things that are so brand new... And again, that might be some of you. You're hearing this, and you're like, I, I, don't, I don't even really get what's, what's being said here. What are you talking about being born again? But that's what Jesus is doing here. And Nicodemus is like, you're, so you're telling me that this must happen by necessity. You may as well tell this old man to climb back into his mom's womb. How can this happen? happen? How can a man start over? How can a man be born again? What can a man do to cause himself to be born again? Well, if that's the question in your mind, let me, let me meet your question with a question of my own. What did you do to be born the first time? What did you do to be born the first time? Did you give consent to your parents? Heard about that. There was a young man who tried to sue his parents because they did not get his consent to have him. Did your parents give consent? Did they get your consent? Did you send a calendar invite to your parents? 
hey, meet me at the hospital at this time. I'm ready to come out. No, right? The fact is, you've done nothing to be born the first time. It is something that has happened to you. And as it is with the first birth, so it is with the second. You can't do this yourself. You can't cause yourself to be born again. You can't just do a couple of magic tricks and poof, it happens. He's saying, it's not about what you do, it's about what he does. That's why Jesus answers in verse 5. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. He repeats himself. Notice that Jesus didn't say, hey, just be a good person and you're in. Notice he didn't say, just attend a couple more youth uh, Wednesdays and you get your membership card. What he's telling Nicodemus here in verse 5 is that you must be born again by spiritual cleansing. That's what he's getting at. Not only must you be born from above, not only must you be born by necessity, you must be born by spiritual cleansing. See that again? He repeats really what he said just prior, and he expands on it. He says, water and the Spirit. There are some funny interpretations of that, but what he's getting at is a spiritual cleansing. The Holy Spirit comes in and washes us clean. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we had done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration, the, the washing of being, your heart being made new, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 25, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and, I will, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove from you a heart of stone and your heart, uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So he's saying you need to be cleaned. You need to be cleansed. The Holy Spirit needs to come over you like cleansing water and wash you free of your sin, of your wretchedness, of your rebellion, of your pursuit of self, of your worship of your idols. He says, you need the Holy Spirit to do that in you. You need to be cleansed. And unless you're cleansed, you cannot enter. Notice that he switches from just seeing to entering. He says, if, if that does not happen, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You can't. Again, impossibility is what's being communicated. You know, when people are blind, they can still stumble across something. Though they can't see it, they can still find something. But that's not the case with the kingdom. You can't see it, you can't enter it. You're not stumbling across this thing on accident. You don't just get there by happenstance. Why? Because that path is narrow. It's a narrow path. 
says, you can't, you can't even partake in this thing. He goes on in verse 6 to explain more. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Nicodemus, even if you were to go back into your mother's womb, your problem would still be the same. The issue is still there. Why? Because what is of flesh is flesh. But that which is of spirit is spirit. What he's getting at is fleshly acts produce fleshly results. But it's the work of the spirit that produces spiritual results. That's what he's getting at there. Worldly birth produces a worldly person. But that which is of the spirit is spiritual in nature. Simply put, you must be the product of the Spirit's work rather than the work of your flesh. No good deeds are enough. You need a work of the Holy Spirit in you. Nicodemus, you need the Spirit to transform your heart. Nicodemus, you need the Spirit to wash over you and cleanse you clean. Nicodemus, you need God to transform you and make you new. It's never about earning your entrance or auditioning for acceptance. This is rather than seeking to produce spiritual, a spiritual solution with worldly works, we have to come to the same conclusion as George Whitfield. Anybody heard of George Whitfield? All the older ones. Ah, Aubrey, good stuff. George Whitfield, man, incredible preacher. Just traveled around, just, just preached. And, man, incredible. But that wasn't always it. His early years, he was part of the Oxford Holy Club. It's a school kind of club, and they were centered around really the pursuit of holy lives. They would fast, self-mortify, they would preach to the lost, they'd go out and do all this stuff, right? All while he was unsaved. He was still unconverted. Still dead in sin. He's putting on all these outward garments that looked good, yet the inside of this man was rotten to the core. He was still wretched still in his sin. And despite all of his works, he was still lost. But it was in 1735 that Whitfield was given a book called The Life of God and the Soul of a Man, Henry Scogel. And he read that book and it transformed him. He read that book and it seems like things just opened up to the reality of who he is in light of who God is. And he says that his eyes were open to the falsehood of his faith and he wrote this. He says, I must be born again or be damned. 21 years old, George Whitfield was born again of the Holy Spirit. And from then on, the new birth was the, the, the towering subject in all of his preaching. He would go out and just tell people, you must be born again. Dear woman, you must be born again. Sir, you must be born again. Young lady, you must be born again. That was his message. Is that you need the work of the Spirit to bring you to life. 
You need to be born again. That's the reality for each and every one of us. We must be born again. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not simply saying that you must do the right thing. I'm not just saying that you must show up on a Wednesday night. I'm not just saying that, hey, you need to get up earlier and read your Bible. I'm not saying you need to start praying more. I'm saying you need to be brought to spiritual life. if you have not been born again, you are dead in your sin. You are but a corpse. Your body moves, but your soul is dead. Again, we talk about zombies and the walking dead. But it's not these flesh-eating things that walk around that are dumb and can't coordinate. The walking dead operate and look just like you. They go around and they go and party. They go around and they sleep with people. They go around and they lead lives of worshiping self. The dead love their sin. The dead chase this world. And the fact is, you pass by them each and every day. And they're corpses. The sad thing is that there might even be corpses in this room. And even now as I say these things, you want to check out and you don't want to hear this. You want to be somewhere else. Because you don't want the reality put before your eyes. Specifically to you that I'm talking to. When I say you must be born again. brought to life. You see, what Whitfield was saying, really what he says at the end of this thing, addressing his conversion, he says a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive sacraments, and yet not be a Christian. Lord, listen to what he cries out. He says, Lord, if I'm not a Christian, if I'm not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, Show me what Christianity is. He's saying, show me so I don't receive 
hell and judgment. Open my eyes. Prick my conscience. Soften my heart. And make me to understand what real faith is. What George Whitfield is getting at is what we all need to get to. And to be honest about who we are, where we are. Are you a corpse playing dress up as a believer? Are you simply in a Halloween costume, pretending like things will be okay? God is not fooled. He sees straight to the heart. You need an act of God in your life. And it's this act that Jesus highlights in verse 8. He says, look, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. You must be born by necessity. You must be born again by spiritual cleansing. But you must also be born by sovereign will. You must be born by sovereign will. See this? He says, the wind blows where it wishes. It's the second metaphor he uses, right next to water. And he uses it to describe the work of the Spirit. Let me ask you, who controls the wind? Who determines where the wind goes? Who predicts what the wind is going to do? No one. And just as it is true with the wind, so that it, it is true with the Spirit. He is incontrollable. He is unstoppable. He is unpredictable. And no one tells the Holy Spirit where to go. No one tells the Holy Spirit what to do. The Spirit moves, and He washes over some, and He passes over others. And He does what He does. And it is sovereign will. It is the sovereign will of God to open up someone's eyes to the reality of their sinful state. It is the Holy Spirit's work to prick the conscience and to convict the sinner and to open up their heart and to give them a desire for truth and holiness and righteousness. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. People aren't just choosing this thing. How can a dead man choose anything? How can a dead man choose anything? It's not about you choosing God. It's about God choosing you. And he must do the work. He must open you up. And only when he begins that work can you finally catch up and say, ah, actually, I do choose the Lord. But that's because he initiates the work in you. 
But that is a work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not a matter of man's power. It's a matter of God's will. Now, all of that is vital and important. And all of that really, I mean, you could even say it's by way of introduction, gets us to the main point tonight. All of that is, is by way of moving us to the main issue. And it's this, that you, my friend, much like Nicodemus, must be born again. You want the main takeaway? You write that at the top of your paper. I must be born again. You must be birthed by the Spirit. You must be brought to life. Your great need is spiritual life. And you need that spiritual life before your physical life ends. Your spiritual life must begin before your physical life ends because there will not be a, a do-over. I'm sorry, can I restart? How about one more try? That's, that's not on the table. You get one shot at this thing. And when it's done, it's done. And he's saying, now is the time. You must be born again. You must be renewed. But how? That question right there moves us right into the gospel. And it moves us right into the reality that like Nicodemus, you are a wretched sinner. You don't hear that a lot in churches anymore. That you are a sinner. That you are not good enough. That you cannot earn your way. That you are not righteous. In fact, Scripture is clear that there are none righteous, not even one. You are a sinner. And the wages for your sin, the payment for your sin is death. If you've rebelled against God, and I'm talking, this is, this is all of humanity. No one's exempt from this as well. You ever said a lie? You're in this category. You ever thought an improper thought? You're in this category. You ever been disobedient to parents? You're in this category. I mean, those right there condemns everybody in the room. So no one's exempt. And he says the wages of that sin is death. Your sin must be paid in blood. And not a one-time deal. Your sin must be paid in blood forever, eternally. It's an eternal payment. Already, we're beginning to see the great issue. 
great problem is that everybody is going to have to stand before the Lord and give an account for their sin. The price will be paid. But God, and those right there, those, those are the most beautiful words. To sit there and hear that you are a sinner who will be judged forever and are on your way to eternal torment and suffering. If I were to end there, that would leave no hope for anyone in the room. But God, he didn't stop there. But instead, he gave his perfect, holy son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who descended, who condescended, and came into earth, spotless, perfect, blameless, in the form of a man, and lived righteously in a way that neither of us, any of us, ever could. He came, and he dwelt among sinful men, sinners, his own creation, his own creation that would ridicule him, beat him, scourge him, and murder him. He came and he lived perfectly. Why? To redeem those sinners. He who knew no sin was made to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What, what, what that means is that that payment that you and I need to pay because we are rebels Jesus came, and he said, look, you have a tall bill, a tall order, and you're going to have to pay it. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay it for you. Imagine that, somebody coming and taking a death sentence for you. You commit some kind of crime, and you stand before the judge, and he's about to pronounce judgment upon you, death penalty, and one who is blameless, who is spotless, who comes in and he says, I will take that payment for you, for you, or for you, for you. He says, you're guilty, but I'll take your payment because I love you so much. That is what Christ has done. He bore the wrath of God upon himself. And he took the punishment that we deserved. And he says, so long as you put your faith in me and trust upon me and live for me, and give yourself to me. I will pay your price. I will redeem your soul.
I will bring you into my household. I will make you a son. You will be adopted into the family. And you will experience redemption and bliss and joy in the presence of the Father forever. He says, should you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he had been raised from the dead, you will be saved. So that is my plea for you tonight. Is that you would bend the knee. That you would recognize the great gift. That you would yield yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. that you would be born again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great grace, Lord. how undeserving we are. For we will rebel, we pursue our own ways, we reject our Creator, and we can very often love sin yet you still saw fit to send your son to come and to redeem wretched sinners. And I know for all of the believers who are in the, here in the room, Lord, we can think back to our lives before you transformed it. And we are so humbled. We're brought so low in view of the great mercy that has been poured out upon our very souls. You have given us new life. You have birthed us into your own family. And it's with grateful hearts that we say thank you. But there are some, Lord, who have yet to experience that. And even now, they're contemplating what has been said and they're, they're wrestling in their own heart about what it means. Would you do a mighty work? Would you help them to buckle the knee? Would you help them to surrender their life and to proclaim you as Lord and to live for your glory? Would you help them it is your Holy Spirit that does the work. Holy Spirit, would you move in them? 
And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give them no moment of rest. That their hearts would be troubled. That their thoughts would be consumed. That their heart would be heavy with everything that they've heard tonight, with the reality of judgment just moments away. The reality is we don't know if we have 40 years or 40 minutes left. What happens now matters forever. Would you bring them to yourself? Would you break their will? And would they be born again? We thank you for your faithfulness and for your grace. And to you be the glory forever, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, look. I know portions of that could be heavy. But the reality is that it's very rich. When you trust in Christ, everything changes. Everything changes. There's no more fear of death. There's no more lordship of sin. It is for the glory of God and for the good of his people. And I desire that for each and every one of you. That when this life is done, whether in 40 years or 40 minutes, and we all stand before the living God, that I would be able to look over and see you worshiping him in fullness of joy. That is the desire, guys. We don't do this just to occupy time. We do this because we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you move into your groups, and as you spend some time talking about what was talked about tonight, think upon this. Wrestle with this. Submit yourself to this. And should you have any questions, please find me, talk to your leaders. We definitely want to talk to you. But don't leave here change.